This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Spiritual Practices and Mindfulness, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Yakir Englander, and I'm talking today with Stefan Folder, the author of Wakefulness in Daily Life, published in Hebrew by the Pardes Publishing House in 2016, and in English as What's Beyond Mindfulness, Waking Up to This Precious Life in 2019. What is the power and significance of mindfulness and similar practices in conflict zones and conflict situations? Does a person need to challenge the norms and authority of the society and the attachment to nationality in order to seriously meditate? Is it possible to teach meditation and still encourage young people to serve in the military? What are the challenges and at the same time, the opportunities of mindfulness for people who suffer from PTSD. Is it possible to believe in the power of a Buddhist-inspired spiritual practice, such as mindfulness, while being a believing Jew? And how should one distinguish between religion and the culture created around it? These are some of the questions that we spoke in this podcast. Stefan Fulder is the founder of and senior teacher of the Israel Insight Society, Tovana, the major organization in Israel teaching Buddhist meditative practice. He has also worked since 1975 in the field of herbal and complementary medicine as an author, consultant, and researcher, publishing many books and research papers. Stefan, let's go deep into the meaning of teaching mindfulness in a conflict zone. How do you became involved um, as a British person who lives now in Israel with both with mindfulness? And how do you teach it in a place that holds so much conflict, pain, and suffering? If it's okay, let's dive in. And I, I want to take a few examples of things that are coming to me as someone who, you know, is a beginner of um, practicing mindfulness. Um, but it's coming again and again. I'm thinking about myself as an Israeli who needed to go to serve in the military, serve in combat for years. Um, I think about my Palestinian brothers and sisters um, that 
are dealing with hard questions. They, they feel that they need a country, a state. Now, when people do meditation, there is at least a feeling that the ideal is that someone who do meditation and understand that by clinging to something, you actually just create more suffering. The work that you need to do is give up your Palestinian wish for a country. Why do you need a country? Why do you need politics? Like, just leave, be there. Or for the Israelis, it's like, why do you go to serve in the military? Like, how can I be in the paratroopers? Can, how can I be in a combat and shoot when I every day start my morning with, med with meditation and mindfulness? How do you do it in Israel and Palestine? Yeah, uh, I think it's, um, we, we have to be careful not to jump to uh, statements about what the fruit of mindfulness is as a belief system and come back like it really into the nitty gritty of what is mindfulness, what its values are, what its purpose is and where it can take you. So it, mindfulness does not lead you uh, to a place where because the one of the end games of mindfulness is letting go of attachment to what is, Therefore, you have to believe in it at the beginning mm -hmm. and say from the beginning, oh, it do doesn't matter about peace. It doesn't matter because I accept things as they are. That, isn't that what the Buddha said? Uh, shouldn't I just be mindful and say, instead of actually making change, just be mindful and li leave things as they are. And the Buddha did not say that. <laughs> and that, I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of mindfulness. Mindfulness is a much bigger field than, uh, than just paying attention. And it's about, it has values. And the values include, for example, if we are awake to the experience of us and of others, we, mindfulness brings us to be, int to be intimate with the, our experience and other people's experience because we are the same as others. Yakir, I'm the same as you. Like you, I don't want to die. Like you, I, want, I don't want to suffer. You know, like you and I are the same. We're two people talking right now, but the empathy comes because of some affinity between us. The same way uh, it, mindfulness will show us what's behind the eyes of the other, what the other suffers, how the other suffers. When you experience that more and more, it will change your ability to function as a soldier and shoot the other who uh, you feel is yourself the other you know the other suffers so you will not shoot the other so easily maybe you still make a decision i cannot help it i have to do this there isn't a choice but still the whole thing will be opened and hopefully you will be a much much more effective soldier we're not making harm unnecessarily and, and, and maybe stopping your colleagues from abusing their position as a soldier because you feel in your heart the connection with the other. You feel compassion and awareness and sensitivity and all of that growing from your mindfulness practice. As a Palestinian, you can say, we suffer. Brothers and sisters of mine, we are suffering. 
I will do mindfulness in the morning, but the mindfulness will help me to get up in the morning and do the right thing for all of us. The right thing may be call for independence as a state, or the right thing may be have a cup of uh, chai uh, in peace and quiet in the morning, because we also need to do that. <laughs> uh, it, whatever it tells us, it tells us, but it certainly doesn't tell us to be passive and resigned and giving up. And I've got a, there's a very interesting uh, sutta or text, by the way, the, the mindfulness that I practice and I teach is really based on um, a big teaching, which is, um, uh, I suppose you could say the early Buddhist teaching and um, not so much filtered through um, history, either history of the Theravada Buddhist countries, like um, uh, the, um, the text, the derivative texts with much, much detail and a little bit obsession um, in, in Burma, for example, uh, or the Tibetan practice, which is itself, you know, hugely culture, culture based or based on Tibetan culture. And by the way, this is something we can go into. Mindfulness itself is hugely culture adapted to the West. And we have a new vehicle called vehicle, just like Tibetan Buddhism, we now have Western. So it's something we can talk about later. Oh, yeah, we will come to but, that. Yeah, but I just want to say there's a very nice little text. That the, just before the Buddha died, he uh, said to, he gathered his monks together and said, monks, be an island. Be an island in the stormy seas. Stand your ground. Don't be overwhelmed by the storms of life. Don't be drowned by the waves. Stand your ground, autonomy, independence. And how do you do that? With care and attention to what are the real basis of your life? I'm breathing. My thoughts are like this. My feelings are like this. My body is like this. The world is like that. Our direct meeting with the world and ourselves as it is, helps us create a basis. And that base helps us stand our ground in the face of any kind of challenge, including uh, peace and war. Thank you for that. I also, I also really love um, the connection that, you, that you, you bring with your, with your teachings for trauma of the past. So in the past years, we have more and more research um, and, and discourse around the place of trauma that happened to us and the relationship with the body, with the body, right? Um, in a way, the trauma is the narrative and the pain is in our body. And it's not only the trauma of us, but also trauma of uh, less generations that is calling us to, to, to heal um, or to do something with that. And I wonder if you, and you bring a beautiful story about um, a woman who suffered terribly at the Holocaust as an example, and she could feel relief for the first time um, when she is doing, um, you know, when she's practicing mindfulness. I wonder if you can share with us a little bit more about this place of trauma and the body. I wonder, also, in practice, what do you suggest students to do when, because they are in quiet, all these voices and all this pain who are 
in our mind, but also in our body is like, oh, thank you for being quiet from your life. So now listen to us. And they start screaming. How should we lead that? Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, first of all, let me say that uh, very powerful trauma, that means trauma that's really engraved in the body system. Um, for example, we get plenty of soldiers, like you, you were serving as a, a soldier. We get today plenty of soldiers that come to us um, with, um, I would say, uh, PTSD uh, and post-trauma. Uh, and th they're, they're, there's a, a really, um, I would say, powerful, almost like an inbuilt pathology that needs some special attention. It is not in the territory of ordinary mindful practice. It needs a more expert understanding because it's, it's very strong. And so, uh, for example, when we get um, people like soldiers who, who, who are suffering from post-trauma, uh, we tend not to tell them to go inside too much and kind of delve in uh, to the inner voices that you talked about, the inner trauma, because that can actually exaggerate it, that can actually uh, give it more space, give it more room, and they, and they can, so instead of that, we try and help them to have new resources. For example, the community, uh, we have to, to be engaged with the community. If they're on a retreat, we ask them to work in the kitchen, to talk, not to be in silence, not to dive in, in, to, in under the, the waves too much because they meet stuff there, they'll meet monsters there that they're not ready to cope with. They shouldn't dive in the ocean, they'll meet the monsters there. So instead of that, we try and encourage them to enjoy life, to feel life as a resource, to sit under trees, to go walking, to talk to us, uh, to enjoy uh, the morning, the, the sunrise in the morning and the sunset in the evening, and to feel that basically their uh, health and their aliveness. So that's a little different from the classical mindfulness. How, so when we're talking about the trauma, which is less, uh, I would say, uh, psychiatric, um, which is kind of most of the human population, actually, um, many, many, many. Um, there, the, the world of mindful attention can really help. And the way it works is this. By paying attention authentically, authentically, to what arises without censorship or without trying to dress it up or without pouring perfume on the shit, <laughs> but... Um, we allow the arising of memory and the arising of pain and the arising of past trauma, whether it's yours or whether it's your parents or whether it's your communities. It, it, we allow it because it's part of uh, the voices that are authentically seen. And the practice is firstly to acknowledge that this is a voice in me and it's all right. It's not a mistake. It's not I'm a cripple. It's not that I'm singled out as a victim. And, and it's just a voice bearing painful memory experience, whatever, even in the body. Allowing it, trusting it, meeting it head on. But the key is to meet these voices as a bit unwelcome, but a bit um, 
unpleasant, can't dress them up, as visitors. That visitors that knock on the door and come in and make a mess in the room. <laughs> They're not the nice ones. They're not the, you know, the angels. They're a little bit demon, demons. They come in, they knock at the door and they come in and they're not so pleasant to meet, but they're still visitors and they're still our stories and we allow them to be there and then to go. And slowly, slowly, as seeing them as visitors that come and go, we develop a relationship with them which is much more independent, much less controlled by them. They are visitors in present moment, in real time, that turn up and go. They are partners in our life. They are part of our inner face, you could say, the shape of our body, their inner face, yes, but slowly, slowly, we can feel our freedom with those voices. So that's the whole journey is not to shut them up and not to dress them up, uh, but to feel our innate freedom along with the voices as well. And when we do that slowly, slowly, they actually do get less because they, we don't give them the space. The, the Buddhist word for attachment, upadana, is feeding. It's a very interesting language there. What do we feed? So if we don't feed them, like if we don't circle around them like a moth around a flame and feeding the story and feeding the story about, oh, I feel suffering, oh, it feels so bad, oh, it's so terrible, oh, we have to do something about it, oh, the, the, on and on and on, and revenge and anger, and I hate those, and they're the evil ones, and and, and so on and so on and so on, building story, building views and going around and around it, um, that's feeding it. And non-feeding it would be, yes, it's there. I acknowledge it. I give it its room that it asked for. I let it in through the door and I watch it come and go. And it's part of my life, but it not doesn't dominate my whole inner life. I love the description of the visitor. There is a, a genre of stories in the in the Hasidic, which is a, one of the Jewish mystic, mystical genres, about people who are in their journey of growth. And always there is a time when someone from heaven sends them a visitor who is going to make a whole mess in their house. And it's so interesting the way how you put it, because I think that maybe for the first time, I really understand what's happening in the story is that it's not so sweet and they behave nice because they need to do two things on the same time. One is to be very kind and to, and to tell to the other you know, children that this person suffered a lot. But on the same time, they need to remember that the guest is not them. And the guest, even if they stay for a while, at one point they will go. Maybe they will come back, but they also will, will, will go. And there is always at the end of the story that as a result of this journey, they got a new baby. Like they get something which is, you know, a new thing that they didn't meet before um, as a result. And I think that you really gave me the language how to look at that so thank you yes. so much for that Stephen. yeah uh, rumi uh, has a poem called the guest house very well known in the in the and and the and the, the the bottom line of this poem is these guests give them space because they are teachers bringing you a message from beyond your pain is a teacher giving you a message from beyond and here i think 
uh, I love the story in the Bible of uh, Job. Uh, the journey of Job, it's so much like the journey of the Buddha. And it, 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 it's because he faced with suffering he couldn't understand. And just exactly like the Buddha, he went on a life journey to try and understand the nature of suffering, which came out of the blue, just like the Buddha. Buddha did it in one night. The, the, uh, Job, it happened to him kind of uh, unexpectedly. And, uh, but both the Buddha and Job were persistent, saying, I will not just accept uh, uh, drown in the suffering and turn miserable, but I will use it as a vehicle and a search for real meaning and liberation in life. And both of them, Job and the Buddha, at the end of their search, received the big teaching of, shall we say, the beyond or the ultimate. And, and the, the beautiful language of Job is not so different from the beautiful language of the Buddha describing what it's like to be awakened. In the end of the book of Job, he just says, you know, God told, showed me that the reality is the whales dancing <clears throat> and the hawk on the wind and the, and the birds uh, flying in the air. Sort of so beautiful poetry. That is what the reality is. Uh, but he needed the journey through suffering to experience the bigness of everything behind, behind everything. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, yes. I wonder when we when we speak about that if you um, if you can help us also because many times people who come to mindfulness mostly when we come you know in the middle of the of, of life because we don't I, I mean maybe we have but it's I I don't know many people who grew up into families of mindfulness I'm sure they exist I I just in most seminars and you know and and the retreats they it's people who meet it during their life. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about repairing what we left behind, because one of the things that really bothered me with the Buddha is that he had life before he left this life. It's like almost reborn. I'm asking all the time, what's happened to this poor wife? I mean, when in the stories he's coming back to ask forgiveness and I, I, always compare the story of the Buddha and my anger towards the Buddha um, to Talmudic, which is another genre in, Jewish, in, in the Jewish tradition, where you have huge critique on rabbis who left home to study and to have the relationship with the divine, but they left home and at the end of the day, when the wife there, she shed a tear, the rabbi died which means you cannot play, I'm a newborn, I'm spiritual now, you know, and leave fire behind you. So I wonder if you can walk us into that. Yeah, I think it's a, a really nice, um, uh, a nice question, actually. And in some way or other, the Buddha, you know, uh, there was a dysfunctional family there. Um, I think that the whole thing has uh, had a lot of uh, rewriting. Uh, I um, 
and rewriting by males. And I think that's one of the great difficulties of uh, the Buddhist teaching and perhaps all religious teachings are so patriarchal, uh, nearly all, not all, but nearly all are so patriarchal and the, and the, and the, and the men have done the rewriting of the texts. And um, so in, indeed, um, there's very, very touching stories and, and texts about Buddha's son uh, that he and Buddha's wife that joined the community and uh, the Buddha invited his wife and invited his son to join them and they did join. Um, but I, I acknowledge completely that um, he may have caused lots of pain and this isn't dealt with in the tradition. And I don't think, um, I think that it's partly the male the, 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 male, the male religious um, kind of ownership of religion that uh, as the Buddhist world suffers from it, but so do all other religious. I mean, they burnt nine million witches in the medieval time. Oh, yeah. You don't hear them burning uh, uh, priests or, 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 you know, witches, female, often old women. There is a story here which is very painful, and we have to be very sensitive to it. The Buddhist community still today is um, suffering from that with a male-dominated many monasteries. Um, the, um, a new monk that just arrived one day will be in front of the female nuns that have been there 20 years. And it, it's, it's not acceptable in my view. And it's, I don't think it's also what the Buddha taught because in the text itself, the, the Buddha was asked these things. And at the beginning, he was a, a bit confused in a way. The text says, well, I suppose we, people asked him, well, can women be as enlightened as men? And is there a difference? He said, actually, no, you're a human being and you're a, 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 you can go on the journey. But he was subject to his culture and the culture is patriarchal culture. So he was a little bit reluctant. And today, it's the same story in the religious culture, whether it's Buddhist or Christian or Jewish religious culture. Um, the the Dalai, da, Dalai Lama, the one time I've seen him cry uh, in a film is when someone asked him about the role of women in the Tibetan um, culture and he cried and he said, you know, we have a big weight of history and I wish I can change it, but I can't change it overnight. And he cried. Mm. Uh, when I was in the monastery in Amaravati in England, uh, I asked the monk, uh, the, the abbot, about this, and he said, look, we are changing, and what I'm doing is not to insist on these rules anymore. If a monk wants to go in front, fine, but if a female nun wants to go in front of the queue or stand in front, I will not say no. I will let things, but it's really, really hard to shift the tradition in five minutes. Right, right. And I think maybe this is one of the gifts that we see um, in religions in America um, and also maybe in the Buddhist tradition that we see more and more um, women who are um, Western and they are one of the top teachers, you know, and... Um, that, that's completely right. And, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about Western uh, Buddhist practice, that uh, we have a now a new culture, just like Buddhism came into Tibet with people who just were practitioners and wise guys and wild guys <laughs> that actually went into Tibet and brought this teaching 
And uh, then uh, it developed around it a kind of shell uh, of cultural history of the Tibetan culture. The same thing happened in the West and is happening. It's only arrived in the West about 60 years or so. Right. Uh, when I started, I was one of the first, along with a few pioneers who brought the teachings. I don't mean intellectual uh, texts or translation of texts. Um, that's been going on for 100, 150 years, Buddhist trans texts have been translated into English and so on. But real practice has only been going around 60 years or so. And, um, and what happened is mindfulness became the flag of the whole Buddhist teaching. Well, that's fair enough. I don't have a problem with that because it has to start somewhere. And then mindfulness has turned into this huge, huge, huge institution, practice and so on. It's gone into the British Parliament. It's gone everywhere. Um, but the, but the, uh, all the rest of the teaching, which is vast, is waiting for us there. It, it, and it's dripping in slowly, slowly, um, but it's still on its way. Uh, it hasn't reached. And so that the kind of foot in the door is mindfulness, but all the rest is waiting out there. Um, and I've written about this. Um, I've got books about this myself. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. I think the next thing that we're seeing now is also to have um, um, Buddhist teachers and mindfulness teachers who are from the LGBTQ community um, question around race is, is becoming more and more important and getting voices. And I hope that as the West got a lot of gifts by the gifts of mindfulness, also something in this mixture in this new soup that is happening here will also give gifts outside um, around that. Yeah, I want to just uh, a, a small story about that. Um, I've tried to, uh, to teach Palestinians um, and mindful practice and so on. Um, and um, I realized that there is a very Western Anglo-Saxon psychology based language uh, that is connected with the way that the, the, the Buddhist teachings arrived in the West. So I had one time 60 open university Palestinian students. I was in uh, Nablus um, and they said, oh, please teach us meditation. I said, OK. Uh, and I started and, uh, you know, I talked about the body and the breath and uh, awareness. And they were looking at me with open eyes uh, as if like to say, what the hell are you talking about? I don't understand anything you're saying. <laughs> so I stopped and I realized it wasn't working. And so I asked them, what is your images of deep quiet? Mm. What, tell me, tell us, what are your images of deep quiet? And they said, oh, you know, our Arab culture is the culture of the desert. We have the quiet of the desert. We have the quiet of the palm tree uh, or the, 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 of the, um, uh, the tree in the middle of the uh, Khan, the, the Arab architecture, it's so with walls around and, a tree, and an lemon tree in the middle, um, or the date palm, and they come in our dreams, and they're part of our culture. We know silence. And I said, oh, good, okay, let's start with that. And I gave them images, and through the images, uh, they could really I, uh, practice, they could develop a kind of a... Uh, uh, inner space they could they could dive into inner space using the um the springboard of something that's culture-based uh to their culture and it hasn't really happened actually in the uh, islamic world uh significantly yet uh but it has in the in the in the 
um, Judeo-Christian, Western, Anglo-Saxon, modern world it, it has come, but not in, yet in the Islamic world. Thank you. So I want to stay one more for a little bit more with, around the question of um, gender and sexuality. One of the things that we know after Freud is that when you do sex, and if you, you bring so many layers of who you are, right? It's not only a physical act, it's not only a mental act, it's, a me it's, it's an act that involves imagination unconsciously, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a whole mess that is coming. And I wonder, because of the way how we look at mindfulness or more specifically on at Buddhism, that the highest teachers are monks. I wonder how much this tradition actually do not let us to have good sex. <laughs> I don't know how to say it in a better way. It's like, what about lust? What about BDSM? What about like good sex? And when I think about that, and when I think about my mindfulness life, there is disconnection in the way how it is taught to us. And something in your book, I felt create connections. Um, you didn't run away. It, as I said, I love, one of the reasons that I love the book is because it feels for me very real. Um, and you let us to stay with the real, you let us to stay with the shit, but also with the desires in a way. I wonder if you can walk with us um, about this tradition that became very monastic in a way, um, and also where the place of desire and, and attachment. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so it's true, again, we're talking about um, a historical process that in the, uh, uh, it actually started with the Buddha. Um, the Buddha said to householders, if you really want to practice, uh, you need to be celibate and you need to leave the household and you need to leave your uh, ordinary life. And the reason is that the amount of real deep inner practice that needs you to devote yourself 24 hours and going into very subtle uh, places in the consciousness, it just doesn't go with being swept by desires and busyness and struggle. It, you need to step out. Uh, to go out of that in order to really, really dive in uh, to a spiritual journey. So that has been a standard statement um, in most, you think of the um, Christian monks, you think of the Desert Fathers, you think of, um, of um, uh, you know, the, the religious, and uh, uh, they're not so much in the Jewish world, the Jewish world tend not to do this. Um, but it's but, still very, uh, the rabbis described as people who are not very sexual. Um, yes, it's not there. yes. Yeah, uh, so that has, that's the origin of it. And uh, it then became institutionalized and the monks became culturally the leaders of the Buddhist uh, faith and the teachers of the Buddhist faith. And, and unfortunately, uh, they also got the status. And we see really, really 
We see it today in Burma, for example, Myanmar. Uh, it, it creates tragedy as well, um, where the monks have the status. And so the government um, just recruits some of the monks to support them. And the monks give them uh, status and reward, and they have a deal between them. Um, so it's the same, in, I think, with the Christian church, with the, the popes and, and, the, and the bishops and so on that were all celibate. I think that that has been a historical cultural movement that is being also abandoned in Western Buddhist teaching because the Buddha was asked, can a householder with a family, having sex, making children, uh, can he, he reach enlightenment? And the Buddha said, yes. Um, Maybe more difficult, maybe it needs more of a struggle because it's in a way easier to go on a permanent retreat and just cut yourself off. Maybe it's easier, but it's certainly not. Uh, uh, and the Tibetan lamas are often married and, and have partners. Um, so it's changed now. The Western uh, Dharma, the Western Buddhist teaching uh, doesn't really hold that anymore and doesn't put monks the number one. The major teachers in the West are people like myself or Jack or, or Christopher Titmus or Joseph Goldstein or others who are family, you know, who are family who enjoy sex. Um, and so looking at the teaching itself, there isn't a, um, there isn't a teaching that says you mustn't have desire. You mustn't, that desire is toxic. What there is, is when the desire takes over and occupies the mind and begins to uh, take over more and more territory in inner space, then um, you are attached, you are stuck, and it kind of draws you away from the devotion to something bigger than what your body asks, what your body needs or what your mind needs today or tomorrow. The neediness and the way it occupies more and more space in the mind is the problem. But natural, ordinary desires, in other words, when you're hungry, you eat. When the Buddha was hungry, he went out to the, to the, to the village and, uh, and got food. Um, when a householder uh, is sexually triggered, um, whether it's, has no, there's nothing about um, male, female, uh, that, that, that it has to be a male, female, it doesn't matter. It's desire is desire. So there's nothing basically wrong with a desire that arises naturally and then is, um, is satisfied or not. Um, and you're independent and free. And if it's not satisfied, you're also free. If you don't get lunch, you're also free. If you don't have sex, but you have desire, which is unfulfilled, you're also free. You don't turn it into a story or a problem or build anything around it or doesn't destroy your life. So natural desire that is brings to fruition um, and becomes satisfied or not is not seen as the as the real issue and is actually it, 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 it's worked with with a small caveat caveat that sexual life uh, has to be very respectful. That means that the respect for another human being is key here, that you cannot, for the sake of your desires, abuse another, use another, or treat another as your, as your tool or your, your um, uh, 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 agent to, 
to, to, to, for your satisfaction. So that's one of the no-nos, um, but not sex itself. The abuse inside sex, that's a no-no. Uh, but natural desire, including sexual desire, is not a problem as long as it's, um, you know, just natural and um, coming and going just as hunger or any other natural desire. We, we, we need it for our life. Without yes. it, we won't, we won't have children. We won't eat. I, but I think even a little bit, I, I wonder, and, and this is the places that I'm still stuck and I want to, to ask you in this opportunity. There is an ability to look at food when I'm hungry. I just, I'm hungry, so let's eat. There is also this, a decision um, to dedicate a half day in order to create a gourmet meal because you want these delicious you want to touch the you want to experience yourself in a new way um there is i want i have a desire for sex let's have sex with of course with respect and um, consent no question but there is also life that it's a style of life of people who says i want to explore who i am by meeting the other in sexual um, communication. Like I see the other in a different way when I go to this journey. And I wonder how much the tradition that you teach invite us to go to these journeys, to go and explore. It's like, don't only meet, there is something even with the fact that we sit, that you meet yourself or when, you, you know, you meet your inner life also, when we do walking meditation, at the end of the day, you are very much inside yourself. I wonder what's the invitation to go and explore and how I can do it with mindfulness. Yeah, I understand. Uh, I think that um, the, the answer might be a little bit challenging what you said just now. Um, is it really necessary? Uh, that could be an answer that comes from mindfulness. In other words, you're, what you're saying is you're doing walking meditation and you really, really want to explore your relationship to this amazing, amazing flower that you see in front of you that is so excruciatingly beautiful and you want to really explore it. Mindfulness will say, yes, do it, but don't forget that the thorn by the side of the path or the little grass under your feet is as beautiful and as exquisite as this so-called beautiful flower that you want to explore. The, 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 the sunset is amazing, amazing, but, but what about the non-sunset? Isn't that amazing also? If there's a cloud across the sky, isn't that as amazing as the sunset? So there is a sense that the whole uh, mindfulness is opening your senses and your awareness to, the hue, to the, all the poetry and the beauty of this world without having to dive in just the sexual act is the place and it because that creates a, an attachment and if you like almost an obsession and you can't have that magic without it you you need that those conditions for you to feel the magic of life and the, the mindfulness will say the magic is everywhere listen to the poetry listen to the song of this blade of grass of this body okay just you know it's right there in front of you all the time. So that's, that would be the answer. Thank you. Thank you. My last question. Um, 
I want to take the example for my last question from Israel since you are living there. Um, Israel is changing in the past 50 years. Um, it's becoming um, it's becoming part of the Middle East. There is more and more um, children and, and big families, more of the more um, religious in a specific way of Judaism. Let's let's focus on the Jewish um, community and for, just for this question. Um, in your book, you you critique um, religions and way of living when we attached to teachers that whatever the teacher says, we say, because the teachers say that, and um, not because we reflect, uh, which is in some ways the opposite of what's happening in some communities in Israel as the ultra-Orthodox. We saw it with the coronavirus, that sometimes there was a conflict between you know, the medical world and, and the rabbis who said like, but we believe in something. Um, I even think about the Dalai Lama, but that's how much he is a teacher and how much he's a figure that people just like, but it maybe teach us, Stephen, that people need some idolatry, some good idolatry, because the pain of life is huge. Mm -hmm. You critique it in a few times in your book. And I wonder if you can, if we are allowed to critique it, because you are right, it's attachments. But also to say, as you told me at the beginning of our talk about the Israelis and Palestinians, shway shway, step by step. Mm. So it's also okay that some communities, because of the pain, mm. they just want the rabbi sometimes to decide for them because they're too tired. How do we walk here? Mm. Yeah, I think that um, uh, it's okay. Um, you know, the teaching would say, if uh, belief, when we're talking about any belief here, uh, belief in an in a authority figure um, or belief in a teacher, um, if it's helpful, then go for it. Uh, but realize it's only temporary. That the real teacher is your inner truth. Your real teacher is your authentic experience itself. Because you can't reach heaven you know, uh, any other way. You can't reach heaven because someone tells you that heaven is up there and go. You know, it, you, it, it, it's the only way you can reach heaven is by seeing that heaven exists in deep in your heart and then you're really there and no one else can do it for you. Uh, no Messiah can do that for you. But on, but on the way, um, it is possible, but <clears throat> I would say that the... Um, the, the key is in a, a text called the Kalama Sutta, where um, it, the, the question is, how do we find an authentic teacher? And the answer is, um, listen, see if the teaching really is helpful, beneficial, kind, and, um, and uh, uh, authentic. Um, and that when you try it out, it gives you a real genuine um, help on the way and then go for it. Uh, so check it out and check out your teacher. Don't automatically believe what your teacher says or your rabbi or your priest or, or your Buddhist monk. Don't automatically believe. Uh, check it out. Authentic, kind, ethical and, uh, and, uh, and wise. And then go for it. And what... Uh, one day you won't need it anymore. 
But for the moment, you can go for it. Temporarily, it's all right. Thank you. So as we will say goodbye, we want, I want to mention that your book that we are speaking that was written in Hebrew, and it's called Erut. You also publish it in English, right? For our English um, speakers. Um, can you say a few words about that translation? And does it still hold all this beauty that um, we have in the Hebrew version? Uh, yes, it does. It's a, it's a direct translation. Um, it's called What's Beyond Mindfulness? Waking Up to This Precious Life. So it has the, and the Hebrew title is a root. It means wake, waking up in daily life. So the subtitle of the book, what's my book in English, What's Beyond Mindfulness, is Waking Up to This Precious Life. And I have it here in front of me. Um, and it's got some really good recommendations from leaders in the mindfulness movement here on the cover of uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who is, uh, in a way, the, one of the, the key people said it's a, it's a deeply illuminating book. Uh, it was kind, uh, uh, kind comments from uh, many of the leaders um, in the field. So it's published by Watkins and, of course, available on uh, Amazon, etc. What's Beyond Mindfulness? Uh, is the English language. The Hebrew one, I must say, has been an amazing success in, in Israel, a small country, but 18,000 people bought the book and, and it's number one bestseller uh, 18 weeks um, in, the, in the list of the uh, instructional books, um, which I was really delighted about. And it, it means that the message is getting out there and people appreciate it. Oh, it was, it's so needed in Hebrew. I was lucky real lucky to to read it and you know it spoke the language that i think for many israelis and palestinians it's like it's in a way in our language and you translate you did the translation in such a beautiful way steven thank you so much for coming to the new books network thank you thank you yakia it was great enjoyed it